Hey, welcome everybody. I'm Isaac Dover, Chief Washington Correspondent for Politico, and welcome to Season 2 of Off Message. Uh, when Antolin Scalia died a year ago, uh, I was uh, somewhere in the air above Colorado on the Bernie Sanders campaign plane landing in Denver. We got, uh, as soon as the uh, service came back on, we got notices that Scalia had died. Someone went running to the front of the plane to ask Bernie Sanders what he thought of it. Uh, He did not have an immediate response. But by that evening, he and Hillary Clinton, both uh, speaking at a Colorado Democrats dinner, said that they thought that whoever Barack Obama chose should be confirmed to the court. That was, of course, after a statement had come out from Mitch McConnell that said that they would not move uh, on anybody that Obama nominated in his final year. And after a Republican debate that night in which everybody on stage, including this guy named Donald Trump, uh, basically agreed with that statement. And here we are. It's been almost a year. And we still have the vacancy on the court, but it may not be vacant for long. Donald Trump, now president, has said that his mind is made up, probably it seems, on who he's going to pick, uh, who his nominee is going to be for this very important spot. He has said that he will make the announcement on Thursday, and we are going to finally have an answer to this question of who the next nominee for the Supreme Court is. We may not have an answer to who the next justice of the Supreme Court is because I think we all know this is going to be a very, very big fight. The Senate Democrats are going to go at this in every way that they can to try to at least delay it, if not hold it up entirely. And what we have today is a person who has been involved in this from the beginning, John Malcolm, who's the director of the Edwin Meese Center uh, at Heritage, who you may remember uh, the uh, when, when Trump was already clinched as the nominee, he didn't really know who he might pick for the Supreme Court and said a couple of things and then said, oh, I'm working with Heritage. And uh, John Malcolm tells us the story of exactly how that happened, how he got pulled into this and why he went about putting out a list of eight people. Uh, A number of those people made it onto the list that Trump ultimately released in May as his potential Supreme Court picks. And then he released another list in September uh, of uh, mostly the same names. And many of those names started out there with Malcolm. He is a perfect example of the kind of people that we're going to be bringing you over the course of this season. You're going to see some people from out uh, and about that you know a lot about, politicians, uh, some activists, and some people who are the -the behind-the-scenes players who are helping shape how things go in Washington, in national politics. We'll be uh, recording uh, interviews with people who are here in D.C. and all around the country bringing you what it is that's really shaping the debate, shaping the way things are going in these very uh, complicated times, very uh, change-filled times uh, for American politics. And uh, Malcolm is going to, you'll hear, he walks us through uh, not only his process, how you get to be through this uh, always somewhat mysterious uh, thing that happens where suddenly there are 15 names and then 10 names and then roughly five names that everybody agrees on. Uh, <laughs> and that's where we are, how that happened, the kind of research that he did to it, who his favorites are, 
who his number one pick is, uh, though uh, that person uh, may not be the ultimate nominee. He does seem to be one of the uh, three finalists. And uh, I asked him whether he thought that Donald Trump is a constitutional conservative. He told me, uh, spoiler alert, he was not sure, but he said he felt very confident in, nonetheless, the kind of process that's coming through here. So we'll talk through that. And then, importantly, we talked through what this is going to matter in. It's not just a, a ninth person to get fitted for a robe and get to sit on <laughs> in that building. Uh, there are a lot of cases that are coming forward through the, to the Supreme Court over the course of the next couple of years that could shape a lot of different things. And he talked through why that's going to matter, not just on uh, gun control or voting rights, but all sorts of other things, laws that are being challenged as they relate to unions. He also talked about what's not going to change. For example, uh, gay marriage, he said, is not something that we should expect will change <laughs> based on this uh, next nominee getting to the Supreme Court or even abortion rights. Those things, obviously, a lot of people want to see uh, a change on, uh, but he said that they should, uh, when you think about the way this is going to go, it's not likely that those are coming with this new pick if, if the pick gets confirmed and is on the bench. So I uh, hope you'll enjoy. It's John Malcolm, the director of the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Ju Judicial Studies at Heritage, and his view on how he helped put uh, some names in play for Donald Trump to potentially put somebody on the bench at the Supreme Court in our conversation here to kick off season two. Let me start with this. Uh, what is it like to help pick a Supreme Court justice? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I fear that my <laughs> involvement in the process has been somewhat uh, exaggerated. Uh, I've given some input. I obviously prepared my own list on behalf of the Heritage Foundation mm -hmm. of eight people whom I thought would make superb Supreme Court justices. Six of those names were incorporated into the Trump list, and he was kind enough to give uh, to give the Heritage Foundation a shout out. Yeah, uh, for a lot of credit. Involvement. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I'm involved in the conservative legal movement. I know a lot of the people who are now going to be serving in the in the Trump White House. I've been very actively involved with the Federalist Society for a long time, personal friends with Leonard Leo. And so I'm, I'm happy to offer my input and to be as helpful as I can in the process. Uh, but, you know, I haven't been making regular visits at the Trump Tower. <laughs> um, let, let, let's go back. You put out uh, your list in, in March, right? Uh, that's uh, right as this is all fresh uh, with uh, Justice Scalia dying. What is the what's the process there? How do you you look out on the the whole world of uh, legal mm. uh, scholars and judges and uh, everybody else who could be on on the list? Mike Lee, obviously not a not a judge himself, is on your list. How do you make the decision to get to those eight people? What is it that guides that? Well, you know, a number of the names <laughs> that are on the Trump list are people who would normally occur to conservatives because these are well-respected judges uh, who have written some very impressive opinions on a whole host of matters. They have uh, given speeches. They have been at Federalist Society conventions. On occasion, they have been here at Heritage uh, to deliver events. You know, we have contacts around the country, uh, and we reach out to lawyers and, in some cases, judges whom we know and respect, and we'll say, well, what do you think about this person or that person. 
Uh, but then it comes down to reading a lot of their opinions and trying to get a sense as to what they are like as a judge and what they might be like as a Supreme Court justice. Uh, not in terms of necessarily the results that they reach, but in terms of the way they think and the way they approach the Constitution, the way they approach statutes. But, but to, I mean, it, we hear about this every time there's a Supreme Court opening, uh, whether it's Democrat or Republican or uh, conservative, legal, uh, liberal. It, it, all of a sudden, names start to emerge. And it seems like there is an agreement among uh, people. That, oh, these are the names. These are the people. Um, maybe it's not the exact same five people, but there are never more than 15 or 20 names that get bounced around. So can you walk us through like how that actually happens, what it is that you're looking for in those opinions? How do you uh, get at what, what the thinking is about the Constitution? Sure. There are some judges that are just exceptionally bright people and they write extremely well. What does that mean, well. exceptionally bright? Like how do you – I mean what is – how do you – You can see it. I mean you, you, you know, if you read enough opinions, just if you, if, if you read books right. by an author, you could see whether this is a mediocre writer <laughs> uh, and a mediocre thinker right. or whether this is somebody who is a scintillating writer, a clear writer, a compelling writer and somebody who is a deep thinker mm -hmm. uh, who is – there are some people who are just sort of – Show horses who are writing right. glossy opinions that reach a particular result that you might like or might not like. And then there are other people who will really delve into the law, delve into the text, delve into the structure of either a statute or the constitution. And you can see almost off of the pages the way their mind works mm -hmm. and how they are reaching the result they are reaching and how they are approaching looking at the legal issues that are involved. Are they thinking about side issues that perhaps were involved in the periphery in the case and thinking about the implications of those side issues to the main issue in the case? And if you read enough opinions in each one of these people, with the exception of Mike Lee, who is, of course, a sitting senator, they've written dozens and in many cases hundreds of opinions you can you can develop a pretty good sense as to the qu the quality of the brain of this uh, of this person and whether they have an approach to judging that is simpatico with your own now in terms of the kinds of uh, judge that we are looking for you know we are looking for what i would refer to as a constitutionalist judge and what i mean by that is somebody who on constitutional issues is going to look at the text and structure of the constitution to see how it all works together and is going to look at that text through a lens, which doesn't mean it's easy to do, through a lens of what was the original public meaning of that text? How would people have understood those words at the time that they, the people, ratified that text into the Constitution? The same thing with statutes. Is this somebody who is giving, you know, focusing on the text, focusing on that statute compared to other statutes? Are they or are they sort of trying to take words that really seem fairly clear and interpret them as if they were malleable so that they can pour their own personal or political preferences into those words? We want somebody who is going to interpret the law you know, as it was written, passed by both houses of Congress and signed by the president. And they will look at that and say, what is the most sensible reading of that statute or – if, if the statute is clear, is that statute constitutional? And so you put together your list. You've got eight names on it um, in March. Uh, in May, then candidate Trump, uh, I guess at that point having clinched the nomination, puts out his first list uh, of, uh, of potential Supreme Court appointments. Uh, a number of your people made it onto that list. Yes. In September, there was another list that he put out. Again, a number of your people made it on. What is your interplay with the, the Trump team through that 
time? Uh, are, and, and who are you talking to? What sure. are those conversations like? Yeah, actually, it's uh, I can answer that in a very, very straightforward <laughs> fashion. I had very little direct contact with the Trump campaign. So here is how that list came into being. So Donald Trump was at – so Ju- Justice Scalia died right. in on February the 13th. Donald Trump in early to mid-March – I wasn't at this meeting, but he was at a meeting in Washington, D.C., attended by a number of, of conservatives and my boss, Senator Jim DeMint, was at that meeting. And apparently during the meeting – Donald Trump turns to Jim DeMint and says, well, the Heritage Foundation helped me put together a list of Supreme Court justices. And Jim DeMint said, sure. And Donald Trump left that meeting, went on the Neil Cavuto show and said, the Heritage Foundation is going to be helping me put together this list. Well, a decision was made that, look, if we were to prepare a list, which I was fully capable of doing, and hand this to just Donald Trump, one could make an argument that this was really an in-kind contribution to his campaign, Mm -hmm. which as a 501c3 camp, you know, we can't do. So the decision was made for good and sufficient reasons. Rather than handing something to the Trump campaign, we'll prepare a list and we'll publish it. So actually my list was as available to Bernie Sanders (laughs) as it was to – Donald Trump. And did you hear from the Sanders campaign about it? <laughs> <laughs> Any day now. <laughs> uh, um, and so uh, that's it? You don't hear from them at all uh, ever even after it's published? No, I got, uh, I, I got a courtesy call the night before uh, he announced his first list. Mm-hmm. It was not a discussion so much as the person on the other end of the phone said, look, there's going to be an announcement tomorrow of the list. And I just want you to know, since you provided this list, I want you to know, I think it was 11 names, who mm-hmm. the 11 names are on that list. And was the person on the other end of the phone Donald Trump? No, the person on the <laughs> other end of the phone was not, uh, was not uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and, and he read me the names of the uh, 11 people. And I said, thank you very much. I appreciate the heads up. Uh, and, and that was that. Now, I have regular contact mm-hmm. because they're friends of mine with some people who are now serving in the White House Counsel's mm-hmm. Office. As I said, I'm friends with Leonard Leo. He mm-hmm. has constant contact sure. with Donald Trump himself. So I've I've had a lot of indirect input that some of it has hopefully made it to the ear of, of the <laughs> president, uh, but not a lot of direct contact. Right. Um, and have you ever had a conversation with Donald Trump about uh, anything? Uh, I haven't. My wife and daughter <laughs> many, many years ago uh, met him at an after party after one of the seasons of The Apprentice, but I've never, I've never met the man. So I, from, from the, the standpoint that you have and uh, knowing these things and seeing with him, do, do you think he's a constitutional conservative? I don't know since I've never met him and, and since he clearly made misstatements about the Constitution, yeah. how many articles there are in the Constitution during the campaign. I don't know how much time he spends – thinking about these issues. He's mm-hmm. certainly not a lawyer. He certainly hired a lot of them right. and, has, and has met lawyers along the way. But I can say this. He has some incredibly smart, well-connected people advising him. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Leonard Leo, Don McGahn, yeah. Greg Katzis, uh, Greg and Don's partners at Jones Day, people mm-hmm. like Mike Carvin and Noel Francisco, who's now going to be the deputy, mm-hmm. principal deputy solicitor general. Uh, Jeff Sessions, I assume, mm-hmm. has some input. I mean, sure. There are a lot of people right around him who are incredibly knowledgeable. And you could see that actually right away. I mean, so there were a lot of conservatives mm-hmm. who were very skeptical right. about Donald Trump. That's putting it mildly. But they were very concerned about the court. So 79 percent of the people who voted for Donald Trump said that the Supreme Court was either an important or the most important right. issue when they cast their ballot. I think when they saw these two lists, the consolidated lists of 21, 
there were a lot of conservatives who breathed a sigh yeah. of relief. They said on an issue that they care about a lot, this was a well thought mm -hmm. through, sober list of eminently qualified men and women from across the country. So it's, it's, it's like it doesn't matter what Trump believes in this as long as the people who are guiding the decision about the, who the appointment is uh, believe the things that uh, – that you want them to believe and feel like they uh, and are following through in the ways that you want them to. Yeah, now he, he's going to have obvious personal beliefs on some policy right. matters that have legal implications. Sure. He's also going to want to have a comfort level with the nominee. Mm -hmm. I mean, as as strange and unprecedented as Donald Trump's political instincts may be, they've been quite successful for him and got Certainly. him into the highest office in the land in a way in which surprised many, many people. A Supreme Court justice is going to be one of the most important parts of sure. his legacy. So I'm assuming that he's going to want to have a comfort level both on a philosophical basis and on a personal basis yeah. with the justice or justices whom he appoints because they're going to be there long after Donald Trump leaves uh, office. Yeah, it seems like it would be a different conversation uh, than the ones that uh, Obama had with his potential nominees, right, where he would uh, come in as the constitutional law professor and really talk about constitutional law stuff a lot. Uh, and Trump, it seems like that it will be a, a different, it'll be like uh, talking to them as people uh, and trying to figure out that dynamic. Well, right? I would, would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in all of these conversations that these prospective nominees have with the president, but I suspect that it's something like what you just described. Um, so let's talk about, we have, uh, it seems like an agreed on shortlist of three people. Uh, and that's uh, William Pryor, Neil Grush, and uh, and Tom Hardiman. Right? Yeah, it's Neil Gorsuch. Gorsuch, I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, what? What? Only one of them was on your original list. That's right? that's correct. And so why? So so Pryor is the only one who made your. Yeah. List, so right? actually, so I've actually heard three different things. So one thing I've heard is that the shortlist is down to three. Yeah. That it is. Um, uh, Prior Gorsuch and Hardiman. I've heard another source that say, well, actually, it's four, and Diane Sykes mm -hmm. is still in the list. Who was on your list. Yes. And then I heard another source that said, well, it's those three plus Raymond Kethledge uh -huh. of the uh, of the Sixth Circuit Court mm -hmm. of Appeals. So you're right. Of the three, Bill Pryor was the only one on my list. I will say I kept my list by design very, very short. Mm -hmm. I kept it to eight names. Had I increased it to ten names – the two names I would have added would have been Neil Gorsuch and Raymond Kethledge. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't. I kept it short. Could have added them. Probably should have added them. They are outstanding. Mm -hmm. uh, Juris and my omitting them from my list was in no way, shape, or form meant as a comment on them. I didn't really know Judge Hardiman other than I was vaguely familiar with a couple of Second Amendment cases mm -hmm. that he had written. I have actually since met uh, Judge Hardiman. He's a, a very personable guy with a rather compelling life's story. Mm -hmm. I've read a number of opinions he's now written in a whole mm -hmm. host of other areas. I'm very, very impressed with him. He has not quite written on the breadth of issues mm -hmm. that the others have. Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, he's a very distinguished judge. He's, he's not a David Souter. I mean, David Souter spent a, a career on the New Hampshire Supreme Court writing mostly about obscure questions of state right. law, spent about three weeks on the federal bench. I mean, 
Judge Hardiman's been a federal judge for over a decade. He's and you say a lot that, of you, that David Souter because you feel like you are convinced that Hardiman is a conservative, and uh, th- that's the reason why you bring up Souter. There. Yeah, no, yeah. that's right. And, and not yeah. only that, but David Souter really didn't have any kind of a track record right. that you could examine uh, in terms of addressing federal issues. Yeah. Thomas Hardiman has a track record. He's written you know, over six hundred opinions between being a district court judge and a circuit court right. judge. My only, the only thing I would say, which is why he would not necessarily have risen uh, to my radar screen at the time I put my list together is he hasn't written on, say, administrative law questions mm-hmm. or uh, a lot of religious liberty questions. He's got one opinion in a religious liberty case, mm-hmm. but not a. he doesn't quite have the breadth of areas that the yeah. others have covered. But he's a very, very distinguished judge and a very personable guy. And if he gets the nod, I think he'd be a superb Supreme Court justice. And so what's the difference between him versus Gorsuch versus uh, Pryor? These are... Only one person is going to, uh, at least at this moment, be uh, nominated to the Supreme Court. What, how do you sort them? And uh, I guess we should put in Sykes and uh, and Kethledge sure. uh, from the, the the. So so if we figure those are the five people that you've heard sure. could be it, <clears throat> distinguish between them. Sure. It, well, it's somewhat of an embarrassment of riches, and in part, their backgrounds are ways to distinguish them. Uh, but they are all outstanding in their own way. So, so Bill Pryor, uh, who was on my uh, list, was the youngest uh, Alabama attorney general at the time. He succeeded Jeff Sessions mm-hmm. in that role. I think he was very bold uh, attorney general. One of the things that, that really stands out, and he, he has taken a lot of criticism from the right for this, and there are still people who I think harbor resentment against this, is you may recall that the Alabama Chief Justice Roy mm-hmm. Moore at the time wanted to have a Ten Commandments mm-hmm. monument outside the courthouse. Can forget, right? And there was a federal uh, district court judge ordered that monument removed, and Chief Justice Roy Moore refused to do so. Mm-hmm. Now, Roy Moore had and has, by the way, a lot of support from the citizens in Alabama, and you know, Bill Pryor, as an elected official, was going to be standing before the voters again. Yep. He said, "Look, I, I may personally agree with Chief Justice Moore." But I believe in the rule of law. A court order is a court order by mm-hmm. a higher court on a federal constitutional issue. And he went in and he took that monument down. And then he went and he made sure that Chief Justice Roy Moore suffered consequences mm-hmm. as a result of his open defiance. Right. You may like that or not like that, but it took guts. Yep. Uh, and then Bill Pryor was nominated uh, to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. As Alabama Attorney General, uh, he had written that he considered Roe versus Wade to be the worst abomination in the history of constitutional mm-hmm. law. During his confirmation hearing, Chuck Schumer asked him two questions, basically. Did you write that? Yes. Do you still believe it? And he expected Judge Pryor to backpedal as quickly mm-hmm. as he could outside the back of the door of the Senate <laughs> chambers. And instead, he said, why, yes, I do, and proceeded to explain Why? He then said, as a lower federal court judge, I will apply the law of the land, and that includes Roe versus Wade, but that is my belief. Uh, And he was filibustered. He was eventually recess appointed Mm -hmm. by President Bush. And then as part of a package deal worked out by a consortium of senators, he was confirmed, but barely, 53 to 45, along with a slate of other judges who were more to the liking of the Democratic senators at the time. He has served with distinction Mm -hmm. on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. He is well-respected by the bar, by his colleagues on the left and on the right, and I might add has served with distinction as a United States Sentencing Commissioner. He is a bright, thoughtful guy with a a titanium steel spine 
who cares a lot about the Constitution. It sounds like he's your favorite of the. Well, I like him, and I'm on record saying that that among these stellar candidates, he would probably be my pick. But you know, it really is an embarrassment to riches. So Neil Gorsuch has probably the best pedigree, although Ray Kethledge comes close. Uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch, his his mother was an EPA Mm -hmm. administrator, I think, during the Reagan administration. He graduated from Columbia College, my alma mater, got a doctorate from uh, Oxford University, graduated from Harvard Law School, my alma mater, (laughs) then clerked for David Centel, very distinguished circuit court Mm -hmm. judge here in in the district, well loved for good and sufficient reasons in conservative circles. He then clerked for not one but two Supreme Court justices. Which is rare. Very rare. (laughs) So he he clerked for Byron White and then he clerked for Anthony Kennedy. I think he was in private practice for a while. He then served in the Justice Department during the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. And he is now on the Tenth Circuit. He has – he's a brilliant mind. He has uh, a a clear analytical writing style. He writes with verve and spirit, very Mm -hmm. much in in the vein of Antonin Scalia, and he has written on a whole host of issues, a lot a lot of religious liberty issues. Uh, he wrote, after my list came out, a really bold and, in my opinion, correct opinion in the area of administrative law, mm-hmm. uh, in which he urged the Supreme Court to reconsider and overturn its seminal opinion in this area, the Chevron opinion, mm-hmm. which covers the amount of deference that is due to executive branch agencies when they are interpreting ambiguous statutes. And basically, Chevron says is that when you have an ambiguous statute, rather than the court looking at the statute and saying, well, this may be ambiguous, but we will give it the best interpretation yeah. we know how, it's to defer to any interpretation that, a le- that an executive branch agency gives so long as that interpretation is you know, not completely unreasonable. Yeah. And, and he has argued that they think that he thinks that that is an abdication of a judicial responsibility and has urged the Supreme Court to overturn that opinion. That was a bold opinion to write. He wrote it after my list came out and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I admire him what for he, it. He, he would have made your list. Of well, as I just said, if I'd added two more names, he would have been on it. And, and yeah, that, that might have been a, that might have been a tiebreaker. Uh, Raymond, well, I guess Tom Hardiman. Yeah. A uh, very interesting story, as I say, a, a, a compelling yeah. person. Grew up very modest means. His father ran a small business involving uh, transportation. I don't think either of his parents went to college. Mm-hmm. They certainly didn't graduate college. Uh, he he drove a taxi part time mm-hmm. when he was in high school, college, and law school to help defray yeah. his uh, his expenses. He went to Notre Dame uh, and then to Georgetown. So no slouch he academically. Right. I don't think he clerked. He was in private practice for a long time, and he did a lot of pro bono work, mm-hmm. uh, including for a lot of religious liberty uh, causes. He was then appointed to the district court and did such a good job as a district court judge that after, I think, a couple of years, he was elevated to the Third Circuit. Mm-hmm. One perhaps inside advantage that that gives him is that he has now been a colleague for a number of years with the president's sister. Yes, and she's apparently been uh, talking him up. From what well, I could well be. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that she has an opinion about him, and I would be shocked if she didn't share it with her brother. Uh, and I've heard that they are that they are friends. Uh, so yeah, Marianne Trump may be yeah. a, a Hardiman a booster. He's written a couple of really terrific opinions, in yeah. my opinion, on uh, on the Second Amendment, uh, taking seriously uh, Scalia's opinion in the Heller yeah. decision and uh, applying that in a pretty rigorous way. Uh, he's written a number of, a number of other opinions that I think are thoughtful analysis of constitutional, mm-hmm. or thoughtful analysis uh, of statutes. Again, he hasn't written. In, on quite the broad array of issues that the other judges has, that's luck of the caseload, yeah. uh, but a very thoughtful 
a guy might be a terrific Supreme Court justice. So you Sykes? Yeah, I got uh, so Diane Sykes is uh, is terrific. She's started. She's from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. She actually started out as a trial court mm-hmm. judge uh, in Wisconsin, and then served as a state Supreme Court justice mm-hmm. for a number of years. That would give her a very different and interesting perspective mm-hmm. uh, because she would have a better sense about the quality of the right. judiciary at the state level. She might pay more attention to federalism mm-hmm. issues. She was then appointed to the Seventh Circuit <clears throat> Court of Appeals, a very distinguished court with some brilliant yep. uh, people, people like Frank Easterbrook and Richard Post mm-hmm. and, and others. And she she more than holds <clears throat> her own. Uh, she's written some terrific opinions on a whole host uh, of issues, Second Amendment opinions, religious liberty opinions, you know, y- you name it. Uh, and she's a stellar person and a stellar judge. One mm-hmm. knock against her uh, is that she's older yeah. than the other. She's 59 years old. Gorsuch is 49. Kethledge is 50. Uh, Pryor is 54. Hardiman's 51. Um, which is true. So she's older, but I would also note that women tend to live longer than, <laughs> than men. And only in the Supreme Court uh, world does 59 count as so no, old. No, well, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'm in a lot of trouble. Um, and then Kethridge, let's do him quickly. Yeah, Ray Kethridge, very bright guy, went to University of Michigan Law School, uh, clerk for uh, Ralph Guy on the Sixth Circuit, and then clerk for Anthony Kennedy, just mm-hmm. like Judge Gorsuch uh, did. He was in private practice for a while, was in-house counsel, I believe, at the Ford Motor Company uh, for a while. He's been on the Sixth Circuit now for over a decade, like Judge Gorsuch and like Antonin Scalia, a really scintillating writer. I mean, some mm-hmm. of his opinions, the phrases used kind of pop off the page. They're very, very clever. Uh, and he's written a number of scholarly, well-reasoned opinions on a whole host of areas. Um, let me ask you, you, you think about legal things, and so I'm going to ask you a question that starts to sound like it's a political question, but it's not. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're going to, whoever the nominee is, it's going to be a big political fight. Right. Uh, uh, I think it's pretty clear that the Democrats are going to do whatever they can to uh, oppose probably whoever the pick is. When uh, when Justice Scalia died last year, what we heard from President Obama then was that he had said to a number of Republican senators, don't do this blockade. Uh, it will hurt the institution of the Supreme Court. It will politicize it. It will draw dysfunction into the Supreme Court. As someone who thinks about the institution of the Supreme Court, do you have any – does that argument make any sense to you? You know, it's very, very hard to say. Obviously, the confirmation process I don't think is pleasing at this point to anybody. Right. So if you're a person on the left, you're going to look and say, oh, my God, wasn't this a horrible thing? And Merrick Garland's a fine judge. Mm-hmm. And he is a fine judge, by the way, and a fine human being. And isn't this terrible that the that the Republicans did this? Republicans have a somewhat – different perspective. I mean, this all started in terms of politicizing the court from the perspective of the right right. uh, with the the nomination of Robert Bork Mm -hmm. and has continued through Clarence Thomas, the filibustering of Miguel Estrada, Priscilla Owens, Mm -hmm. and others. There was no great love lost uh, between the Republican side of the Senate and the Democratic side and President Obama. Uh, in November of 2013, Harry Reid ex- exercised the so-called nuclear option. Yeah. He did it for one purpose, and that was to pack the second most important mm-hmm. court in the land, the D.C. Circuit, and get three judges appointed so that a push came to shove on controversial issues, the court could take the, the right. issue on banc and would more likely rule in favor of the administration. Yeah. I would also note, and you know, perhaps it was it was 
Judge Garland, who was caught, or Chief Judge Garland, who was caught as a pawn in a chess game that was not of his own making. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a history there. So then Senator Joe Biden, mm-hmm. you know, a year and a half, or I think it was, it might have been a year, to go in the George H.W. Bush administration, said, hey, right. this is an election year. Right. If there is a vacancy, the Senate will not confirm anybody whom you send up. And then about a year and a half to go into the administration of George W. Bush, Harry Reid said the same thing. Right. He said, uh, you know, if, if there is a vacancy, we will not confirm. So, so there is the idea a, that, a lot that of this was there. politicized or dysfunctional anymore in 2016 it, to you, it's not really compelling. We were already down that that uh, road. Well, we were well down that road. And the other thing that I would point out is that, look, uh, Anthony Scalia served on the court for 30 years. Right. Anthony Kennedy, who was a Reagan appointee, is still there. Yep. These people serve for decades yep. after the president who appointed them leaves office. There are only nine of these folks up there on the court, and mm-hmm. they decide a whole host of very, very important issues. And as you were at the end of an administration, you know, you could get some sense from the people because an election was going to be coming up soon as to who they wanted naming right. Supreme Court justices. So I think that there is certainly a political aspect to that decision, but there was a principled argument to be made. Mm-hmm. But even if you don't like any of that, there's a certain amount of sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. <laughs> but as an institution, you don't think it did anything to harm the institution more than it... Uh Again, more, more than the harm had been done already or I, – Look, I, I think the Supreme Court confirmation process has for better or worse become politicized. I, in terms of damaging the court, no. The court continued to do its business. Mm-hmm. It picked a few fewer controversial cases yeah. this year that were likely to divide the court. They only evenly divided on, on a small number. Uh, they will get a new colleague up there in the not too distant future. Any issues that they really want to decide again, they can hold over for right. re-argument. Mm-hmm. So the court muddled through and appeared to do quite well. And I guess my feeling is, is that at the end of the day, it is far more important to get a good constitutionalist justice up there than to rush the process and get up somebody who may not be up to snuff. And that's not to imply that Merrick Garland wouldn't have been up to uh, up to snuff. He just wouldn't have made your list. Yeah, no, he would not have. He would not have made my list. But he is. Look, he's a fine. He's a fine man. He was. Right. He was a fine man before he became a judge, and he's a fine man as a judge, and he's a dedicated public servant. And so, you know, I, I wish him well. So, in, assuming that things move even pretty rapidly here, uh, if uh, we get this nomination and the confirmation process goes in a relatively short order, we probably won't have a judge on the bench too far ahead of the end of the term in June. There are a bunch of cases that that judge won't have sat in the arguments for, so wouldn't be part of. Uh, if we think forward to, to next year, the coming years, the, the major things that you think are coming down the pike that we will see this new judge having a real impact on, uh, what are those issues? Where, and we don't have to get uh, deep into those cases. Sure. But, but where, where do you think people should say, OK, this is what Donald Trump's nominee is going to do to help shape the court and, of course, help shape uh, what's happening in America starting from the get-go and, and for the next probably a couple of decades to come? Sure. I think for that, all you need to do is look at where the court is closely divided. So the court – actually, they don't tend to be closely divided on a lot of issues. They're only closely divided on about 15 to 20 yeah. percent of those cases. But those issues are issues <laughs> right. that, that you know, the public cares a lot about. The Second Amendment, the First Amendment, things like Citizens United, religious liberty, mm-hmm. racial gerrymandering, uh, abortion, um, voter integrity laws. I mean you, you, you can go down the list. Right. Uh, 
And so those are issues that are likely to come before the court where it could make a difference because Justice Scalia was the deciding vote. Religious liberty issues like the so, Hobby Lobby what, case. What's going to change? What, what, well, I don't think it'll be so much a change as much as where Scalia was a tiebreaker and mm-hmm. now you have a tie, you'll go back to having a tiebreaker. So let me point to a couple of areas, for instance, where the law won't change mm-hmm. immediately. So there won't be a change, for instance, on same-sex marriage mm-hmm. because Justice Scalia was in the minority yep. uh, for that. And so all you're doing is replacing you know, somebody who was in the minority. Right. Abortion jurisprudence won't change. Mm-hmm. Again, Justice Scalia was in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade. So even if you get another justice up there who is in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade, all you are doing is returning to the status quo ante that existed before mm-hmm. Justice Scalia died. But there are other issues like, as I say, the religious liberty issue, the Citizens United issue, the Second Amendment issue, even the death penalty, yeah. uh, which is actually in the Constitution itself. Those were issues in which you tended to have five to four votes mm-hmm. with Scalia being in the majority. Right. And so now you effectively have a 4-4 tie. And if you get somebody on there with the same rough jurisprudence, right. although you never will, there'll be differences. Sure. Uh, you now will go back to having five, four votes in favor of the conservative side. Uh, and so then uh, th- that's what's not going to change. But what, it, what do we think uh, – what should we think is going to change here? Well, I think the court's been very reluctant to take, for instance, voter ID cases. Mm-hmm. I think they were very closely divided on racial preferences, although Kennedy went over and mm-hmm. sided with the liberals uh, in the Fisher case – I guess it was a term uh, a term ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're going to start seeing a lot of cases that have begun to clog up the pipeline on things like transgender rights, racial preferences, disparate impact applications of laws and whether that is a correct interpretation of law or not. A whole slew of Second Amendment cases. There are all kinds of issues about constitutional rights to concealed carry, mm-hmm. what you need to do in order to get a permit. The court's been avoiding taking these issues. There was one Uh, issue that uh, had to do with compelled union dues Mm -hmm. of public sector uh, employees who are not members of that union yet. A portion Mm -hmm. of their salaries are are compelled as union dues because of the collective bargaining process and whether that violates the First Amendment. That was that 4-4 vote last year. Well, yes. But what happened was the argument took place before Justice Scalia died. And it was very clear after the argument that that was going to be a 5-4 case ruling that those compelled union dues violated the First Amendment. All of a sudden, uh, Justice Scalia died and you know, that issue was tied and, and the lower court ruling was affirmed. That issue, I'm sure, will bubble its way up and there will be a change in law if, if the past holds true. So it seems like union dues uh, or laws governing unions, uh, maybe overall, uh, guns, uh, transgender rights, voting rights, those are where we're going to see the court uh, be uh, – I'm going to use the word active here even though I'm not saying it. No, well, it's, it's not so much so. active as much as <laughs> – Involved. They'll be, I think they will be involved because they won't be afraid about being tied. And do you think that we're going to see a court move in a different direction than if uh, Antonin Scalia were still alive and, uh, and, and, you know, we were going into this new year right. with it? Or is I, it, or is it, it do you, any of these people, and of course each one of them, as we were discussing, has their own uh, personality and legal uh, sense of things. But overall, is it going to be just essentially what it would have been had Scalia been there? Well, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I think it's a, an overall matter. 
yes, you're going to return to the status quo ante that existed before Justice Scalia died. So where you will start to see differences is would be in the next pick if you're yeah. replacing an Anthony Kennedy or replacing a Ruth Bader Ginsburg or a Stephen, Stephen Breyer. Now, there were some areas right. of law in which Justice Scalia did not reach the politically conservative results. So remember, it was Justice Scalia who held that you had a First Amendment right to burn a flag. Mm -hmm. It was Justice Scalia who was really known as the criminal defendant's best friend on the Supreme Court right. because he took seriously right. the constitutional protections yep. that the criminally accused have. And he took seriously reading criminal statutes narrowly to provide you know, the clearest uh, message as to what the law prescribed and doesn't prescribe. And if it was a vague and ambiguous statute, he was not shy about saying tie goes to the criminal defendant, mm -hmm. even if this was a bad person who had done bad things. I don't know whether the next justice is going to be the criminal defendant's best friend on the Supreme Court. Right. So you might start to see some changes uh, in the area of criminal procedure, but I just don't know. Well, I feel like... Uh we there, it seems like there's a pretty decent chance that uh, we may be talking about yet another Supreme Court nomination uh, before the end of Donald Trump's term, and <laughs> yeah, and I mean, in which case it would change things up a lot more. And <laughs> yes, yes, no, that's exactly right. I mean, so one thing I I have pointed out, and and please, I don't wish anybody any ill health. Right. That you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 83, Anthony Kennedy is 80, and Stephen Breyer is 78. They have already – this is just purely an actuarial matter. Right. They've already outlived the average <laughs> lifespan of men and women in this, uh, in this country. So the odds are high that over the next four years and certainly over the next eight years, one, two or possibly all three of them right. will, will retire or frankly drop off this moral coil as Justice Scalia did. And uh, that seems like it will be more pitch battle. We'll have to come back and talk to you again about this. <laughs> yeah. No, that will – then you'll start seeing some changes. I think that's right. All right. Um, I think that's a good place to leave it.